You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Ed Komarek is standing by to talk about fire, wildfires. What's causing them? Well, He says it is a rabid fire suppression culture to blame. Not uh, climate change, uh, not directed energy weapons, but a, uh, a fire suppression culture. But he's also sounding the fire alarm that there is a very high probability of terrorist wildfire attacks in the United States and around the globe in the next few years. Pyroterrorism. Uh, Ed is with us for the full two hours. Uh, We are streaming live on YouTube tonight. So get on up to the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show, and hit that red sub button if you haven't already. Now, let me introduce the boys in the band. Our fine rockabilly friend Ian Robertson is off tonight, gigging somewhere, I suppose, stepping in for Ian on uh, the sunburst Gibson Les Paul guitar is Foz Kazi. Did I pronounce that correct? Correctly? Great. Our technical producer. Welcome, Foz. Uh, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin story producer, remote viewer, Albert Venzel is with us. And finally, uh, where were you last uh, week, Albert? We got our signals crossed, I guess. Uh, oh, yeah, I thought you were going to host from home <laughs> that I th- week. That's I funny. thought so, too. Actually, I was spreading a rumor that you were, you're, um, you were spying or something. <laughs> something I do occasionally. <laughs> Spread rumors. And gossip. No, we're, we're glad to have you back. You were missed, my friend. Uh, and finally, on the Hammond B3 live stream producer, Ryan White. Uh, welcome all. Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide, is about changing a global culture of fire suppression to a culture of good fire management where prescribed fire is used to put simulated natural light fires back into fragmented light fire ecosystems. We'll find out what that all means in a moment. Uh, The the book clearly points out that it is the unnatural buildup of fuel caused by over 100 years of fire suppression that is the real cause for widespread global destruction of forests and grasslands by catastrophic fire. Smokey the Bear and the United States Forest Service and other government agencies around the world have built these powder kegs. And now, the terrorists want to light the fuse, releasing the power of multiple atom bombs on Americans, American and other cities. 
Why go, why go to all the trouble and expense of making an atom bomb when several individuals in a plane or car can light a line of wildfires 100 miles long under high winds and drought conditions? Imagine a fire hundreds of feet high with the power of multiple atom bombs in a couple of hours could overwhelm all attempts at fire suppression. It could trap people in cities, killing thousands, maybe millions of people. Something equivalent to the devastation of cities by firebombing in World War II. Homeland Security is already informed as to the threat. Uh, We're about to uh, speak about uh, that in uh, just a moment here with Ed Komarek. After quitting college at the University of Alaska and co-authoring the first scientific paper on the fishes of the North Slope of Alaska for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game in the early 70s, Ed went through an existential crisis and emerged intent on discovering himself and what life was really about. This led him him into the paranormal field, eventually resulting in the writing of two books, now free, UFOs, Exopolitics and the New World Disorder and Enlightenment, The Long Hard Road. Ed, however, has not forgotten his fire wisdom and knowledge gained early in life and in later years. Like his father, Ed Sr., Ed feels outrage over the needless man-caused catastrophic destruction of millions of acres of light ecosystems every year in the western United States, Australia, and elsewhere around the world. Ed Comerick, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hey, Richard. Good to hear from you. Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide. We should point out uh, that some of this is your writing and some of it is just sort of compiled... Um, from other people and so forth. Now, yeah, the, what I what I try to do with my books is is not just give my opinion. You know, and basically, if if I say something, I want to back it up. And so, fortunately, with the internet, you know, with word searches, you can get pretty good at that. And so, I've tried to back up and footnote, uh, you know, everything that I say. And like, for instance, we were just talking about pyroterrorism. If somebody does a search on pyroterrorism, Homeland Security, the very top on the three search engines, at least on my search engines, at the very top is the latest is a is a uh, twenty oh twenty oh five paper that apparently is just put up there in the public domain, basically saying what I've been saying all along for years. So they're on to it. Right. I want to I want to address this narrative that's out there, though, that, um, you know, every every year we hear they seem to be ratcheting up the uh, the hyperbole. The 2018 in places like British Columbia was I read in some accounts it was the worst year. Others, it was the second worst year uh, for fires. They're talking now we're seeing wildfires in places that we traditionally don't in in wetter, cooler uh, climates, places like Finland, even the what they call the peatland moors in England. Of course, we know where this narrative is going. They're trying to blame climate change for wildfire. What say you to that? Uh, basically, there is some, you know, probably effect from climate change, but the, the real driver of these catastrophic wildfires is fire suppression. Uh, way back in the 1920s and even earlier, uh, even the formation of the Forest Service, uh, they decided that fire was bad for the environment, and they've set out to suppress all fires. And starting here in the southeastern United States in the 1920s, they had the Dixie Crusaders that came by with projection screens and everything and trying to get the landowners to quit burning their woods. And what happened was is that 
suddenly the quail started disappearing on the quail, the rich people's quail plantations here in my area and my neck of the woods here down in southeastern United States. And they wanted to, so some of the people got together and they wanted to figure out why. And they brought Herb Stoddard down to study it and the Co- Cooperative Quail Association. And he did. And, uh, and one of the chapters of his Bob White Quail book is on the importance of fire. And quail and a lot of other wildlife need annual uh, fires here in the southeastern United States in order to survive. But the suppression was, uh, against suppression was fought out by my father and his associates and Herb Stoddard. Herb Stoddard was a good friend of Otto Leopold, and my, and my dad was mentored by Herb Stoddard, and he was mentored by Dr. Ali at the University of Chicago, another of, one of the founders of the field of ecology. And my dad was really the first full-time fire ecologist. And, they didn't have much luck out west. Uh, the Forest Service and other government agencies were very entrenched uh, with the Smokey the Bear propaganda. And so what my dad had to do is, is starting in 1962, he really jump-started fire science by pulling together fire conferences with people all around the world. And even the Forest Service at that time wouldn't even allow their own people to come lecture on, on uh, the importance of fire in nature even on their own time and at their own expense. And fortunately, that's all changed, but you have this culture out west, a fire suppression culture that's so set that what's happening is as the firefighters get better at putting out fires, it creates more fuel accumulation in the forest. And that, in turn, uh, forces the, uh, the, the firefighters to get uh, even better equipment, you know, uh, airplanes dropping retarded and everything else and put, you know, keep those fires put out. And until you get in this vicious cycle of fire suppression and fuel accumulation, that now is just uh, unloading these catastrophic mega fires. So, in other and, words, when you talk about uh, this uh, accumulation of fuel, you're talking about dead wood, older trees that uh, normally, you know, forests would be sort of thinned out with a, a natural occurring wildfire, a lightning would strike or something. It would burn out some of the dead wood. It would be a smaller fire. It could be controlled. Uh, yeah, but with, yeah, in the absence yeah. of these smaller con- con- contained wildfires, you have this latent energy that's building up in forests all over the world, really, and then when it yeah. when it does blow, it's it's these are huge wildfires, and that's why wildfires are getting worse. Not because of because of climate change, but because of this fire suppression culture. It's worldwide, is it? This idea that we, we... yeah yeah what what I say is is for instance there they they used. Uh... A prescribed fire and control burning on the Apache uh, uh, um, reservation out west, and uh, if it's if it's climate change, how come the wild the catastrophic wildfire you know hit as soon as it hits the Apache reservation fizzles out? And the reason is is they're using frequent fires in the Ponderosa Pine there in the Apache reservation. Uh, and they're using frequent parodic fires, and what that does is it sweeps the forest clean. And what people need to understand is that fire has always been a part of nature. It goes back almost 500 million years to when the mosses first colonized the 
the surface of, of, of the land and created enough oxygen for fires to burn, and, and, they, and it probably caused a die-off of 90% of the species at the time because a lot of those species at the time couldn't handle oxygen. Oxygen was poisonous to them. And so, what, so fire has been a part of nature, and what happens is, is a lot of these what I call light fire ecosystems uh, like ponderosa pine out west and longleaf pine here in the southeastern United States, what they do is they they are adapted to burning out the competition. So they've got these uh, uh, very well insulated trunks and this kind of flaky bark. It's very good insulation to insulate the cambium layer around the tree. At the same time, they have these flammable needles that they drop to burn out the hardwoods and other competition. So what happens is the pines drive the, uh, the, the ones that can't handle fire down in the lowlands into the wetlands, and they occupy what we call a, uh, um, a uh, like down here in the southeast, a longleaf pine climax forest, a fire climax forest. But if you get down the lowlands, you have... What eventually happens is you have a beech magnolia climax forest, and those beech and magnolia can't take a lot of fire. They can take some, but they can't take a lot of fire. Ed, i got to jump so, in here because uh, the music is percolating up, which means we're going to go to a break. But my gosh, yeah. it, there's like it's almost like there's a consciousness, an intelligence here with these trees. Well, your, your, your house is a competition when you put a pine tree or a eucalyptus tree not next to your house. You know, it's going to burn your house up because it's, it's, try, it's trying to enlarge its, its the sunlight. Space. Okay, Ed, we'll, uh, we'll come back and pick up on this. Ed Komarek is on the program, and we are talking about wildfires and pyroterrorism. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ed Comerick is with us and uh, the author of a number of books, including Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide. And he blames what he calls a fire suppression culture across the globe now. Uh, for the appearance or the, the, the sense that wildfire... Well, they are getting worse. They're getting bigger. They're getting more destructive. But, but it's not because of climate change entirely. A large part of this, again, has to do with this fire suppression culture, uh, which means you have more sort of latent energy building up in forests around the world, more deadwood, fire... Uh, um, trees and, and wood that would normally be burned up uh, in smaller controlled fires, but uh, they're, they're preventing that. Now, this whole Smokey the Bear fire suppression culture, what is behind that? I mean, are these individuals that started this, were they well-intended, or was there some nefarious plot? I mean, why did they, why did they institute this, uh, well, this well, policy? My, yeah, well, my dad used to say the road to hell is paved with the best of intentions. <laughs> and what you have to go back ten thousand years, really, uh, to understand how this culture got started. Uh, back when you, when you had native peoples that were living off the land, what they did is they used fire to tend the landscape. And so, all these landscapes that we've got here, these old growth forests, or, or a lot of them, 
old growth forests that we have, like longleaf pine in the, in the east and uh, ponderosa pine and sequoia and redwoods in the west, uh, the Indians tended these forests and they opened them up and they built these cathedral-like forests by using frequent light fires because no self-suppressing Indian wants to, you know, walk through, hunt through briar patches and get all scraped up and get eaten up by ticks and red bugs and everything else. And so they opened up the land into these cathedral forests. And this, what they did was by opening up the can of canopy, and letting just enough sunlight to get down the growth of grasses and the legumes, that fed the wildlife, because most wildlife doesn't eat trees. They eat the grasses and legumes, and they don't eat brush. And so the trees need to be spaced a certain distance apart to be optimal for a, a, a good light fire ecosystem. So the native peoples all over the world built up what was seeded to us when when we when when they died when they died from disease and conflict and when the Europeans invaded in the United States and also elsewhere around the world, you lost your native fire managers who were using frequent fire and for as a livelihood. They would you know burn like a fire patch. You know after two years uh, it you burn it and after two years it fruits out and you eat blackberries for several years but then you have to burn it again or otherwise a brush will come up above it and shade out your briar patch and so you have to burn a briar patch a certain way you have to burn for blueberries a certain way you have to burn for different kinds of wild wildlife deer and quail and turkeys and whatever a certain way so they went through the woods burning with different kinds of fires, backfires that are really light, head fires where they wanted to really, you know, you know, clean out an area or whatever. So they were tending, they were using a, a very advanced type of what we call permaculture today is they were economically developed their substance from the land and they had this deep relationship, intimate relationship with the land because they, they were, you know, part of nature and they were dependent upon nature, and so they revered nature, and they had this, quote, intimate bond. But what happened 10,000 years ago when uh, Native people started, the population started to build up from, techno from technologies of, you know, bows and arrows and stuff, whatever, you had more people, uh, you had to go to farming, which, you know, people know farming is, take is a lot more work so you're not going to go to farming unless you've got a hot population that you've got to feed and so they got into farming as soon as the Europeans got into farming and using flash and burn agriculture they started to lay waste to the forest and and as they moved into cities and villages they mined the forest which seemed unlimited to them uh, for trees for building houses whatever and for firewood for all these other different things, and so they devastated all, most of the forests of, of Europe uh, during the the last few thousand years. So there's you know very few residual amounts of old growth forests in Europe. So the the, the, the cultural memory of the European colonizers uh, is, is so far back of being part of nature, whereas a lot of the native peoples that were conquered have a cultural memory that that where living close to nature and living in nature is not that far away. So what happens is people have got divorced, Europeans have got divorced from nature, they separated from nature, they decided they they were to, to, to conquer nature and so what so 
what happens with this separation from nature ultimately results in what we have today because what happens is, is they wiped out the forests in Europe. They came over here and they started logging, uh, you know, in Jamestown. They started logging trees for ships and for, for, for uh, take back to Europe because they didn't have the trees in Europe anymore. And so they started logging in the early part of the 1800s. They just started widespread clear-cutting down the whole eastern part of the United States, and then that all moved out west, you know, later in the 1800s, you know, when, when, during the Industrial Revolution, and people got even more divorced from, from the reality of nature and, and being part of nature and, and whatever in this process. And what happened was that this... Is this um, this cutting of all these, these old-growth forests that the native people had been tending uh, and laying waste to all these forests, all this debris from the, you know, the tree trunk is part of it, but what really burns is the pine tops and, and, and the leaves and all that kind of stuff. And so what happens is, is she started getting some catastrophic fires in these cutover areas, as well as there was no native people there to really manage it, to continue to burn it annually, like in the southeast, whereas nature would have burned it maybe every four or five years, you know, in the southeast, but they were burning it much more frequently and whatever. And so this is, and so the, the, the foresters that came over from Europe got caught up in these wildfires in the latter part of the 1800s and the early part of the century, and they had to fight these fires, and instead of really blaming themselves and blaming people for what had happened, they blamed nature and they blamed fire, and they started this fire suppression policy in the early part of the 1900s that's continued to this day, particularly out in the western United States where it's been so ingrained, and it's quite different. They've had fires in Florida back in the 20s and 30s and 40s that were as bad as in California, but the culture between my father and his associates and some of the Forest Service people that actually rebelled and covertly started prescribed burning after some of these massive wildfires in Florida, the culture never got established. Fire suppression never got, you know, culture never got established, but out west it did, and so it's this constant thing. Now the Forest Service is paying over half of its budget on suppressing fires instead of wildfire mitigation and right. ecological reconstruction projects and right. whatever. So that they're caught in this trap of more and more fuel, better and better firefighting, with more and more fuel. And you know, people like myself are trying to show that with the like the ten, uh, the, the the billion acre plan for the Western United States is the way out. How do how do you get out of this catch twenty two? How do you get out of this con- cultural trap that you got yourself into? Right. Well, that was a yeah. I have to say that was a brilliant dissertation. You really. Um, condensed that down and and um, uh, you did a great job with that. Now, uh, a couple of things I want to pick up on. And one, you, you mentioned ticks. And uh, I mean, this is a bit of a side road, but I think it's an important discussion. We have now Lyme disease. We have people worried about ticks. Is And, and they're saying it's uh, now Lyme disease is near epidemic uh, proportions, but, you know, the medical establishment doesn't really want to talk about it. Uh, is that then tied into this this whole fire suppression yes. culture, the Lyme disease epidemic? Yes, here in the southeast United States where I live, you know, I do some burning for clients as well as for myself, and I hardly ever see a tick because it makes sense. If you burn every year, the ticks are, they don't burrow underground and be protected like, you know, some creatures do, mice and stuff like that. They burn, they get away from these fires. You know, it's hard to really kill wildlife with a fire, with a fire anyhow. But the ticks are all up on the surface and the leaf litter and all that. And when you sweep the forest clean every year, 
you clean out all the ticks. But if you go down to Central Florida and places where there haven't been any fires and the ticks are very, uh, are very um, uh, frequent and you can't hardly get out in the woods without getting ticks on you, and a lot of them have got Lyme disease. And a friend of mine is actually crippled up. Actually, Herb Stoddard's grandson was doing controlled burning down in the central part of Florida, and a tick got him between his toes, uh, and he got Lyme disease, and it paralyzed him where he can't even walk now. Right, right. And, and so, um, so the, the, the eastern. What happened with fire suppression in the eastern United States is it's not as dramatic, but it's been as devastating to nature as what's happening out west. It's just that you don't see it because what happened is is you wiped out a lot of the uh, fire adapted pines and species and, and herbs and grasses and all that kind of stuff in the eastern United States, and then they were been replaced by hardwoods that are. They don't carry fire very well. The strategy of hardwoods is to, to make leaves that are not very flammable, so they don't burn very well, so they don't you know get burnt out. And the strategy of the pines is to is to create hot fires to burn out the hardwoods. And so the the hardwoods and the pines are all battling it out between each other to survive. And so when you clean out, when the forest is cleaned out with light fires, like the native peoples you know did. You don't have the problem with ticks and red bugs. It burns up the red bugs, too. Fascinating. Here's another thing I want to ask you about, and that is the, um, the loss of nutrients in our soil. Uh, used to be, you know, you'd have a fireplace, and you'd take the wood ash out to your garden, and you'd put that wood ash in the soil, and that was good. There was nutrients in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, about the time, I guess, electricity came around, and, and um, people stopped doing that. Uh, so, do you see a connection then between fire, this fire suppression culture, and the fact that we have no nutrients in our soil and therefore no nutrients in our fruits and vegetables? Uh, that gets in the area of permaculture, you know, and, and this, you know, we have a lot to learn about sustained agriculture and permaculture living, doing our agriculture in harmony with nature. But that's what the native people have been doing for tens of thousands of years, probably 60,000 years in Australia, you know, and uh, over 100,000 years in, in, in parts of Africa and in Europe. Uh, even, even the Neanderthals were probably using fire to uh, ad- advance their own economic agendas and whatever for game, game and, and fruits and berries and nuts and all these kinds of things. So now... Uh, and we're going to get into this discussion about pyroterrorism because now we have, again, this latent energy build up in, in uh, forests throughout North America. And it's, it, you describe it as an, it's an absolute powder keg. Yeah. Uh, and you're See, saying that... The, yeah, first we made the mistake that fire is bad for the forest, which is caused accumulations of fuel. And so... so Instead of blaming the accumulations of fuel and the, and the, the fire suppression activities of policies and whatever, we start blaming emissions. We blame lightning. We blame arsonists. You know, we we blame accidental cat uh, fires and whatever and whatnot. But that's not the real. There's always going to be people, and there's always going to be nature that's going to be light. They're going to be lighting fires, and so. You know, if you build up a powder keg, there's going to be somebody that's going to light the fuse and blow you up. And 
And so the ignitions is not the problem. Climate change is not the problem. Ignitions aren't the, you know, not the problem. Fire is not the problem. Nature is not the problem. The problem is our own ignorance, our own separation from nature. So that we do stupid things. We build our houses out in the wildlife urban interface, and we put eucalyptus trees next to the house. And, it, and the eucalyptus is probably the, one of the hottest catastrophic fire types. And they just, eucalyptus a lot of times just doesn't burn along the ground. Some of them do. But some of them just blow completely up in catastrophic fires in Australia and burn everything to the ground. And those eucalyptus can sprout out of the trunk after a fire like that. So that eucalyptus or that pine that you've got right next to your house is dropping leaves and needles into your gutters on the top of your roof, your asphalt roof and whatever, and, and wooden siding and whatever, it, it's gonna, is, is out to burn, burn out the competition. And you're the competition because it's competing with other species and you right. for, for sunlight. Now, so, is that why we see, we see uh, in these forest fires sometimes, we see houses uh, completely burned out, but then the trees around them untouched, and which has led to this whole conspiracy about directed yeah. energy weapons. And is that yeah. what's happening? Explain why we yeah, see yeah, houses. This, yeah, this is, this is where it, their ignorance comes in again, you know, and, and it's our culture. It's our separation from nature. Native peoples understand what's happening. If you light a fire and you build up a head fire and whatever, and, and say there's a catastrophic fire, it, it, can, it can, the head fire can stop at the edge of town, but what happens is, is the, the, all the smoke and all the embers can go for a mile or two and, and drop down into palm trees, and everybody's trying to burn palm fronds when they're dead. You know how hot a palm frond, you know, burns, because that goes back to the Carboniferous period. They, the palm fronds came adapt, very adapted to fire back about uh, 350 million years ago. And, and, when, and so those embers hit those palm fronds, and those palm fronds drop sparks down onto your roof or the pine, on the pine needles, and you got pine needles in your gutter, and you got asphalt shingles, Set your roof on fire and burns your house from the top down. But not only that, it can the, the the embers can actually come in through ventilation systems and burn houses from the inside. And so, what you've got is some people have far, have metal roofs and they have you know uh, fireproof siding on the sides of the house and they have defensible space around their house so that the the you know, fires other from other buildings and stuff can't get the uh, you know can't. But it comes in through the ventilation. Council. Ed, I got to take a time yeah. out. Ed Comerick is yeah. here, and we'll uh, continue to discuss wildfires and pyroterrorism when the conspiracy show returns. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Ed Comerick is uh, with us, and um, Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide, is one of his books. Books. We're talking about wildfires and how the culture of fire suppression has led to these um, increasingly intense uh, wildfires that we're seeing around the world. But 
the big concern now is that there are terrorist groups that will seize upon this um, and 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 start a a truly catastrophic wildfire. And Homeland Security is 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 worried about this. Um, so how do you? I mean, how how would this happen in your uh, to your mind? Would they? Okay. Yeah. Let me finish up a, a little little bit about the, the reason that, they, that one house burns and another house next to it doesn't burn is like I was talking about. One of the reasons is is embers. You know, one house you know has a tin roof and it's well protected, doesn't have any eucalyptus trees next to it or or pines and you know needles on the roof to catch the roof on fire or to catch the siding on fire from, from because there's no defensible space and people can search the internet for and uh, just type in firewise and they'll explain to you how to protect uh, your house you, you know to fire harden your house from uh, from burning embers and 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 wildfires but as we burn as we've moved from the uh, in the cities and moved out into the suburbs out into the wildlands you have the public uh, fire suppression in our national forests, you know, and whatever, that's causing huge fuel accumulations. And that's added to by the people living in that wildlife interface that have a lot of flammable material all around their houses and everything. And so what happens is, is a catastrophic wildfire that's, that normally would be burning on the ground, you know, in a light fire, say, Ponderosa Pine Forest, you know, and what would be hurting the trees, and it would be, you know, ecosystem-friendly and everything else. Instead, because of all the fuel, it goes up into the crown of the tree and causes the whole crown to burst into flames, which creates these huge uh, uh, firestorms or walls of flame. And even if it burns up the people, you know, on the edge of the city in the interface, you know, with the head fire, all these embers start dropping down all over the place of the rest of the city and brought into ventilations and on the, on the roofs that catch on fire and everything else. And so that's why you have this sporadic uh, distribution of, of burned-out houses and whatever. And that's part of it. And part of it is that fire is just fickle. It's always being affected by wind and humidity and whatever. And so it, the wind blows it one way, very hot, and then it, and it, and it, and it, goes, and it backs in kind of cool, the other way. So even in catastrophic forests like lodgepole pine that burn catastrophically and they have what they call serotonous cones that require fire for them to seed in on a burn and whatever, and those cones can get burned black on the outside and those seeds are still protected on the inside and drop down. But in, even in lodgepole pine, you have places where there's very hot and it burns through all the crowns and then catastrophic fire, and other places where it just backs into the, underneath the lodgepole pine and leaves little you know green groves and whatever. So if there's a lot of variables that involve fire, and and and, uh, and that's the reason that people make the mistake of thinking there's some kind of exotic reason for why these right. things have happened and whatever. And so, so now you have arsonists lighting fires, you know, and whatever, you know, into these catastrophic areas and causing a lot of these mega fires. And some of them are actually even firefighters. They, you know, I just, I just noticed today I got put onto it that uh, a hundred, on average, a hundred firefighters a year are convicted of arson. Is that right? A hundred firefighters a year. Why on earth? Why on earth? Look up Wikipedia uh, fire. Firefight, firefighters arson, and you know, that is a Wikipedia uh, entry I just found there that says 100. That's not all wildland firefighters, but they're 
wildland firefighters are part of that and whatever, but that's a whole other thing. So you've got arson that's ready to light the thing, but it gets taken to a whole new level in the next several years because what happens is the pyroterrorists get in get into into this, and they realize that we built this powder keg. So why 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 should they have to try to find an atomic you know make an atomic bomb or whatever when you have the power of multiple atomic bombs out there in our forest right up next to our cities? So all they got to do is go up wind and light a line of fire with an airplane or a car along the highway, and that and that fire within an hour will will burn through the urban interface, the the urban uh, wildland interface to the edge of the city, and then the sparks will drop onto the rest of the city and, and create firestorms like you had in Dresden and in Tokyo. And, you know, the fires that we have now, arson fires we have now, are not too bad because people can evacuate. But if, if somebody lets a, lot, a line of fire north, north of the city or whatever, within an hour that city could be incinerated and people couldn't get out because all the roads would be blocked of people trying to get out. And, whatever. and it used to be like uh, there was in the central United States, well, it was a really bad fire way back in the 1800s when people all had to run down in the river. You know, well, you can't do that anymore. you got too far to run. You can, and you, if you can't get out with your car, you're stuck. Right, so, right. And, and, and so you hadn't seen nothing yet. You know, and California is right in the terrorist sites because the terrorists have been watching what's been going on in California. First they started talking about Montana, using fire as a weapon in, Mon- in Montana. But now it shifted. You, you can see from the, from the uh, material that I posted here just recently on an article I did on Homeland Security and pyroterrorism. It's, on, it's uh, under the More button on my Fire and Nature book. Anybody can read for free. And, but there's also articles there under the more 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 button that I've written on fire history and pyroterrorism and the billion acre plan to really get our park forests and and grasslands back in shape to to end to end this wildfire problem. But it's going to take billions and billions, hundreds of, maybe a hundred billion dollars or more, and nobody wants to come up with that kind of money to prescribe fire the good big chunk. So of homeland security, homeland security uh, is saying it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when some yeah. terrorist cell some lone wolf decides to light the fuse on this huge powder keg uh, which could be absolutely catastrophic as you say it would be like yeah, the know, fire like, bombing like, in like dresden yeah you know like the air the, you know the, the the terrorists spent years training on how to fly airplanes in the buildings before they did 9 11. Well, we've got the thousands, maybe tens of thousands of firefighters, you know, out out there if with connections to the Middle East, you know, and people traveling back and forth to California, back into the Middle East, and and, and one of the one of the one of the uh, articles that I linked onto my pyroterrorism article, uh, you know, talks about that they're debating, you know, you know whether it's, uh, it, it, it's a good thing to, you know. It's right to burn forests in order to, you know, to kill people and stuff and whatever. All right, Ed, i got to take another time out. We'll come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
Ed Comerick is here. We're talking about wildfires and pyroterrorism. Let me just read this. This was a, a keynote address at the Firehouse World Conference in San Diego back in February 2013. The speaker was Robert Baird, the U.S. Forest Service's Deputy Director of Fire and Aviation Management. And uh, this is what he said. The United States is at grave risk of future pyroterrorist attack when terrorists unleash the latent energy in the nation's forests to achieve the effect of a weapon of mass destruction. We must define the threat, understand America's vulnerabilities, and take action to mitigate this danger to our homeland. Now, let's just talk a few minute, uh, for a few minutes, uh, Ed, about uh, how fire uh, has been used as a tool of, wa- of warfare. Uh, I mean, we, people w- might remember, you know, the Second World War, and uh, the Japanese sent uh, these these fire balloons over to cause wildfires. And, and uh, this was an attack on the U.S. mainland by the Japanese that maybe some people aren't aware of, but these fire balloons, they killed about six people in, in Oregon. Um, how else has fire been used as a weapon? Uh, Native peoples and even Europeans used it to shoot fire arrows into thatched roofs, uh, uh, houses and buildings in in towns. Uh, Another way is on ships. They used to shoot uh, uh, fire arrows onto ships to catch ships on fire. Right. So there's a lo- there's a long history of of, of uh, use of fire uh, as a weapon. And I, I, I believe the Aboriginal peoples of Australia sort of used fire to discourage uh, the British settlers coming onto their uh, onto onto their island. Uh, I don't I don't know about that. I'd have to search it on search it on the internet. But uh, the native peoples fought amongst themselves. You know, used fire at, at, you know arrows to. Uh, catch their other tribes' uh, buildings on fire, right? Uh, and, and and it goes on, you know, back in history, you know, in history, pitch bombs. You know, you get a, a bomb of per- burning pitch, you know, and you throw it and you heave it over onto the ship, and it spread, you know, it spreads out, you know, across the ship and catches the ship on fire. Uh, so fire has been, a, you know, been a weapon, you know, for you know as, as long as man has, has fought. Uh, you, you know, with other people. Here's uh, a, yeah. ABC News. It was an issue uh, of Inspire magazine, which surfaced on jihadi forums. Again, this is ABC News reporting this. An issue of Inspire magazine, which surfaced on jihadi forums with one article titled, It is of your freedom to ignite a firebomb. And it gave detailed instructions on how to build an ember bomb in a forest in the United States. So there's already chatter out there among certain terrorist groups that this is this is what they want. Oh, these oh, they're, they're already doing it. They're they're putting ember bombs up on kites uh, this last summer, up in, on kites and balloons, and that blow into Israel and have set uh, a, a lot of uh, fires. And they've all and they and all through Israel. Uh, there's like a hundred and something fires all got started at once or something, and and quite a few uh, Palest- Palestinians were uh, were caught and prosecuted on that. So it's, it's nothing new. So it's just a matter of of there's nothing to an amber bomb. You know, all all you got to have is a char- is a bucket full of charcoal 
uh, burning charcoal and the tongs, and you just you, know, you can just flip it out or sparklers or, or anything, you know. To, but but most people aren't going to understand how to do it. But firefighters certainly do, and so that really worries me a lot because firefighters have the skills, and there's tens of thousands of firefighters that have been trained, you know, to fight fires that have the skills, and it's really not if you have the skills, it's not really that complicated to. To uh, to create a, uh, a situation like you had in World War II with Dresden and Tokyo, you know, and some of that bombing was deliberately in World War II was deliberately to create firestorms, and some of it just just happened because they you know they bombed so much, but some of it was you know they used flammable you know bombs and stuff, whatever. I think on Tokyo because Tokyo was less a lot of wooden and paper shanties and whatever all through Tokyo, and so. Uh, there were, you know, a large numbers of people that were killed in Tokyo as well as in Dresden, and and so it's it, it's it's all through our history. As long as you know, as man has been man, you know, fighting and involved in warfare. But there are solutions to this problem. People, you know, once people realize that they're sitting duck in some of the some of these cities and towns out in the western United States. They can do things. They can. One of the things they do is they fire hard in their own houses, you know. And they go, they go to on the internet and they study, study up a little bit about how to fire hard in your house and to create defensible space for your house. But you can also create prescribed fire buffers around the city, city, particularly where the prevailing winds come from. So that if there was a a, a pyroterroristic attack, it would hit that prescribed fire zone several miles wide. And fizzle out, and so it couldn't get to the city. But but that's going to take a lot of money because it, it, here I burn per acre for my clients. About it's only about twelve dollars an acre. But you burn in the Western United States, it's five hundred to uh, two thousand five hundred dollars per acre. So and you've got millions of acres that that need to be treated with prescribed fire. And the more you get into the wildland uh, urban interface, the more expensive it gets because you got to watch out so you don't burn up people's houses and whatever when you're using prescribed fire and whatever. But, but it's it's got to be done. It's either spend a hundred billion dollars now or or end up with trillion dollars of damages in in, in burned out cities and loss of life and everything later on. So how how vulnerable is Los Angeles, uh, uh, Ed, to such a uh, an attack of pyroterror, where the whole city could be incinerated? Well, you you have you have to look you have you have to get on the internet and study that. I know some places when I was over there, you know, like where you know Redding got burned out. Was it like a thousand buildings or whatever in Redding uh, this summer got burned out? There's places in California when those winds come in and something nice, whether it's power poles or arsonists or whatever, the catastrophic fires are unstoppable. And I remember like Santa Barbara back in the 70s, I went out on a sailboat, and, and, and they, those people have built their houses amongst all this brush all the way up the sides of the, of the hillsides and mountains. And so they're extremely vulnerable. You know, to it, and so Los Angeles and 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 I've been through the area around outside Los Angeles. You got a lot of brush, and a lot of fuel and grasses and whatever. And I had some friends that lived north of Los Angeles, and they they had a ranch up on the top of a hill, and that was very vulnerable because the fire could just be lit down on the bottom of the hill and just run right right the side of the hill and whatever. So if if you've got brush and grasses and even combustible. Uh, you have you've uh, got ponderosa pine that hasn't been burned for 30 or 40 years, or you've got lodgepole pine, which is a catastrophic fire type, which burns everything in its path, just like eucalyptus does or whatever. 
you're 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 really setting yourself up for big big trouble at some point or whatever. But is it conceivable and, that the entire city could go up? Uh, you you have you, you have I'd have to see some studies studies on that, and people don't like to talk about it. They don't even like to talk about this subject. But it's got to be done because you can just see the way see what's happening is the, the fires are getting hotter and hotter, and, and you know, and, and there's more and more emissions from people and arsonists and whatever. And we can see when it goes on into pyroterrorism that we hadn't seen nothing yet. And it's going to make it's going to make 9/11 uh, be like child's play if if if, if uh, uh, one or more cities go up in, in a, a a line of catastrophic fire where people can't get out in time. And so there's there some are more vulnerable. Now Perth, Australia is a leader. They've got they're they're building prescribed fire zones all all around Perth and even in in the within the city limits of Perth, I think, or whatever. And 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 and. Um, in, in Arizona, in Flagstaff, Arizona, they, they've got building prescribed fire buff, buffers all around Flagstaff. So Flagstaff is getting pretty well protected. But a lot of these cities are wide open. And I just don't know about Los Angeles, but uh, but uh, it could it could be it could be vulnerable. And any, anywhere where you've got a lot of dead grass and brush and, and trees that haven't been burned for a long time, um, even the chaparral, chaparral is a catastrophic fire type. It burns, you know, maybe every, I don't know, 30, 40 years. You know, have to look at it, you know, more up in, on the Internet or whatever. But when it burns, it burns everything in, in its path. And if you're building amongst chaparral, you know, you're, you're really asking for it. But all this has got to do with just public ignorance of nature and fire being part of nature and how to manage fire properly, we've got to go back to what the native fire managers were doing and rebuild these ecosystems, these light fire ecosystems, you know, back to what the, the way they were, the old growth forest. These old growth forests didn't happen. Nature, you know, developed these old growth forests forest to a certain degree, but a lot, a lot of it was actually managed and created by the native fire managers who burned more and more frequently, so you had uh, cooler and cooler fires, more the more often you burn, the cooler your fires are going to be. The less often you burn, the hotter the fire is going to be in general. Now, you get up into, you know, you've got light fire ecosystems, you know, in the eastern United States and western United States and up in Canada, up around Toronto. I don't know what kind of trees you have up there, whatever, but when you get up in further north in our borough forests and whatever, you get into catastrophic fire types of trees. But what you have there is what you have is a fire mosaic, is that catastrophic fires will burn out one area and another area, and they overlap, and the moose and the game and the elk can move from from one successionary stage to another depending on what their food source is. You know, you know, uh, a fire will burn, stuff will sprout up, they'll be able to eat it, it'll get too high for them to eat, so they need to go to another catastrophic burn. But what happens is you suppress all these, even these catastrophic fires, you destroy the, the fire mosaic. That's what they did in Yellowstone. Is is that 80 percent of Yellowstone is lodgepole pine, which is a catastrophic fire type that burns, you know, the, you know, through the tops of the trees and what, whatever. And they just burned all of Yellowstone at one time, and so they wiped out the fire mosaic. But now they're letting fires burn back in Yellowstone finally again and whatever, and recreating that fire mosaic. So fire is probably uh, a factor in, in the evolution of probably 80% of the forest, you know, probably not the tropics, but most everywhere else, temperate zones, even, even all the way up into the Arctic. 
pyroterrorism, the threat of arson-induced forest fires, as a future terrorist weapon of mass destruction. And uh, Ed Comerick is sounding the, uh, the alarms. Uh, so is Homeland Security, although we're not hearing too much about this as a potential threat. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. And uh, at, cer- at a certain point, maybe in the second hour, we can switch gears because you've got other things that we can talk about as well. But we'll also open up the phones and uh, take questions and comments. Toll free from out of town, 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. And in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. 416-360-0740. Uh, now, in terms of um, hardening your, your home or hardening an entire city, you mentioned these, these, uh, these buffers. So just in the, in the minute or so that remains, let's talk a little bit about that. How do you, how do you protect a city? Okay, once you get these buffers in place and whatever, and you protect the wildland urban interface and the city itself, then you can move out back into the national forest and whatever, and you don't have to worry about burning up people's houses. So you can, so you can, you know, prescribe fire, you know, for ponderosa pine, for giant. We almost lost our giant sequoias uh, here, uh, uh, I think, several years ago, whatever, by catastrophic fire, because in the giant, there's only that many, not that many sequoias, and they go back to the Cretaceous. And the only groves that I know about are the ones in California and the ones in China. And how did those sequoias get way over into China? It's because back when the, when the sequoias and the pines and everything, you know, de- developed, it was when the continents were all together and the continents all separated. And, and so you have pines all over the world that all came from original source, the same way with the sequoias, which are more of a remnant population. There's not that okay. many left. Okay. Ed, we've got a break here. Top of the hour. We'll come back. Phone lines are open. And uh, we'll continue to touch on pyroterrorism and fire suppression culture for a few moments yet. And then maybe we'll switch gears. Uh, Ed has lots to talk about. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Ed Kamerick. Comerick, my apologies. Ed Comerick. Fire in Nature, a fire activist's guide. And uh, we were talking about uh, the fire suppression culture, uh, which is largely responsible for the, the wildfires that we are seeing throughout the world today. It's not directed energy weapons, folks. It's not climate change. It's fire suppression culture, where these frequent controlled fires and fire management and using fire uh, in a responsible way to clear out deadwood and so forth and underbrush that's all been uh, gotten rid of remember those Smokey the Bear uh, campaigns 
That's all uh, contributing to the intensity of wildfires that we're seeing today. And it's just a matter of time before all of this latent energy in forests all over the world, and particularly here in North America, uh, that someone decides to light the fuse that will cause such a catastrophic wildfire that the world has never seen. You could have an entire city going up. How long would it take for a large metropolitan center once a wildfire um, takes hold and is uncontrol- uncontrollable at this point? We're seeing you know, a, a wall of fire hundreds of feet high, and it starts descending on a city. How long would it take for a major metropolitan center to go up in, in, in flames, Ed? Not very long. That's the problem, you know, and, and you know, you might even, you know, you know uh, people can check with their local, you know, local uh, governments and whatever and see what kind of vulnerabilities they have. And you can search the Internet on, on the cities, uh, how vulnerable they are. And if they're vulnerable, they need to get out there and start lobbying their, their leaders, the political leaders and whatever, to get the money to, to get these prescribed fire buffers put in, and and also you know, and and also fire hard, um, hardened homes. Now, Jerry Brown and the legislature in California authorized a billion dollars over five years, but that's just a drop in a bucket to do these things. And uh, uh, it's going to take a lot more than that. It's going to you know, it's going to take a hundred billion, probably more, you know, over ten, fifteen, twenty years, or even longer to get these ecosystems back into natural balance again. And so first you've got to deal with the wildfire problem. So you've got to deal with wildfire mitigation, which means you've got to get the debris out of these, burn the debris out of these forests very carefully, because once you, have, once you have a lot of debris, it can get away from you very quickly. And so it's not easy to burn the first time. And also you can get uh, uh, what we call duff fires around the base of the tree. The fire can go through cool, and you don't think you've burned any trees, but that duff starts burning. That debris that comes from the from the uh, bark falling down around the base of the tree starts burning like a fuse, and it'll girdle your trees. And a year or two later, you'll have a bunch of dead trees. So you got it's very it's a very delicate process, and it takes a lot of skill to to, to remove the, these huge accumulations of fuel. But it's got to be done, and it's going to be expensive. And people have to pay a lot of money for it. It's going to be a lot better to do that now than to pay later. It's going to be a lot more. And, and, and but then, you, Ed, then you're going to run headlong again, headlong into the environmentalists who are saying, we can't have all of these controlled fires all over North America uh, cl- to, to clear out this dead brush because you're going to contribute to... Uh, you know, greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide and, and so forth. I mean, it, I don't know uh, how you're going to fight these people. That, that it's well, become a, a religion. Well, a lot of problems with smoke. You know, as people get a little smoke in the city because they're so diverse. You know, here down the southeast United States, states it sucks in with smoke. People are used to it. It's no big deal. In the western United States, they get a little smoke or they get some ashes in their swimming pool or, or whatever, and they get upset. And they talk to the politicians, and they and it makes prescribed burning very difficult. So you've got the regulation, regulatory hurdles to, that are in place, and you've got the environmentalists who have been propagandized just like everybody else by Smokey the Bear, you know. Too, but I think they've done studies on it, and that prescribed fires don't really add to the to the carbon in the atmosphere, you know, in whatever like catastrophic fires do, and the debris that builds up. That debris is either going to rot down, which is going to 
put carbon in the atmosphere or it's going to burn and, and fertilize the soil for new growth to come up for wildlife and plants and, and whatever. So these fire-adapted ecosystems need fire in order to survive, and, and we have degraded them to such a point that uh, we're, we've lost a lot of these ecosystems, and now we're going to, once we get the wildfire problem under control, we've got to start rebuilding uh, building these ecosystems, and that's going to be a, a difficult process because you've got a lot of invasive species now. We put, actually put Pangea back together again, you know, by moving plants and animals and diseases from all over the world, you know, spreading them out, you know, all, you know, back to, you know, to a, almost like a continent, supercontinent coming back together again, you know. Right, And right. that's just created a lot of trauma, you know, for all the different species that are not as adapted to, say, as an invasive species from China or some, somewhere else in the, in the world and whatever. So we create a huge amount of environmental damage, and, and it's back to a culture. It's even existential because our very existence depends upon us understanding why and how nature works and to work in harmony with nature rather than to see, see nature as a resource to be exploited and dominated. Because nature's going to come back and bite us, and it's doing that right now with the wildfires, and it's doing it in more subtler ways in the eastern United States and whatever. So we've got, we've got to get back in touch with nature. We've got, you know, we, we've got to re-educate ourselves about the importance of fire in nature. We've got to, to get rid of this propaganda, that, that Smokey the Bear propaganda that's been hit from big, spent billions of dollars on these propaganda campaigns to get people to stop, you know, to... to, to put out forest fires and whatever and let this debris build, build up the way it Right. Way it I want to come back to a point you made earlier, which I found very intriguing. You mentioned something like, on average, 100 firefighters every year are charged with arson. Yeah, now, now that's not just wildlife firefighters, that's all firefighters. Right. But or Wikipedia, you can look up in Wikipedia. What, just look up, what's uh, at work there? Fire. Why is that? What's going on there? Do you have any, any theory as to why? Uh, they discuss it on Wikipedia. Some of it, the firefighters are just bored. They want some excitement. Some of them want some, you know, want to extend the fire season a little bit so they can work a little longer. Uh, it, uh, it's just typical, you know, human motivations. And most of the firefighters are really good, good folks and, and, and very capable and whatever. But just like in anything else, you got a few bad apples, and a few bad apples can cause a lot of trouble. And especially when they're skilled. At, at, at putting out fires and laying fires and backfires and whatever to protect cities and stuff and whatever. They develop all the skills to become a pyro, uh, easily become a pyroterrorist. They go from becoming just arsonists to become pyroterrorists. And, and but this, the ignition is not the problem again. The problem is the fuel. Once you, once you get the fuel accumulations down, then you don't have to worry about ignitions. And ignitions in a provide prescribed fire zone isn't going to do anything. It's not going to get up in. The, it's not going to climb up into the crowns of the trees and create a catastrophic wildfire. It's going to burn along the ground and be easy to put out, or it'll just go out on its own because there's nothing to burn. So, if, if climate change is a problem, you know why does a fire? Why does a fire a wildfire when it hits a prescribed fire zone uh, go out or fizzle? It, it's not it, it, because you burn the debris out under on under damp, cool conditions. 
in a very careful way, so it's nothing to burn in, dr- in a drought, no matter if climate change created the drought or whatever created the child. There's nothing to burn there because you've got the fuel accumulation step right. down. But when the fuel accumulations are up, then maybe climate change has an, is, is having an effect. What about fires that go underground? I've heard that fires can burn underground for years and then pop up somewhere else. Uh, you can get down in coal seams and that sort of thing, but but even as prescribed, it gets people doing prescribed fire fits. There was a prescribed fire, there's some prescribed fires down here in my area where it burns in the peat under the fire line and comes up the other side two weeks later to start a catastrophic fire on the other side of the fire line. Uh, peat, fire, peat fires will burn all summer long, you know, like in Oak Finoki Swamp, but that's important for a fire to burn in Oak Finoki Swamp because it burns out all the peat and, and, and whatever, and, and, it, and it cleans the Oak Finoki Swamp up, and, and you have a lot of open water and, and everything else that's been uh, turning in, being turned into a peat bog all gets burned out. So it's very healthy for the wildlife and whatever. Even a peat fire is very healthy in a wetland because it burns out all the debris and accumulations of peat and whatever and in, in, in whatever. So fire goes back almost, you know, 500 million years. And uh, in, in the carboniferous palm, palm trees uh, are very fire uh, uh, hardened and whatever. They, they've got, they've got, uh, I've seen them where they've been almost burned, even really hot fires almost completely through and they're still alive. Amazing. And, How did you get involved? And, I mean, I know your father was um, was a fire ecologist. Um, how did you learn about all of this? This is a, your, the depth of your knowledge is remarkable. I, I grew up in a fire environment. Uh, as soon as I could walk, I was out there riding on the tractor, trying to drive the tractor. You know, sitting in my dad's lap, plowing fire lanes, and getting out and lighting fires when I could when I could barely walk. So and so, I developed the skills from mentoring, and this is what Native peoples do. Native peoples uh, 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 taught their children, and the children taught their children whatever. So it's knowledge of how to to, to use fire as a tool, you, you know, was handed down from generation to generation. And so that's what happened to me. And you just can't get that from academia. You can't get that from classes and whatever. You've no. got to get out there. You've got to get out there in the woods. And spend and spend uh, uh, a, a larger part of your life out there in the woods. I'm the only birds on plantation is was our plantation is the nature center now. I was over at probably it's five or six five acres. I was probably over every square foot of that as a kid. You know, whatever I knew, it just about every tree, every little every little uh, habitat or every little micro ecosystem there. And so when I let a fire through there. Got one area I want to burn hotter. I, I burn it with a head fire, and then I set it up where the fire backs through, or some small pines or whatever that I don't want the fire to hurt. And so, very carefully created all these little uh, micro, uh, you know, habitats and ecosystems and whatever. And that's how and St. Mark's Wildlife Refuge is way ahead of a lot of the government agencies. They're protecting a, a endangered salamander that relies on fire to burn out these little peat bogs and stuff where the salamander needs, is almost completely wiped out because of fire suppression and whatever. Right. And, and we've got to take a break, Ed. We've got to take a time out. Uh, well, fire has the ability to destroy but also create. We're going to switch gears when we come back, Ed, and then move on to other matters if you're good for that. We can explore. Okay, I, I, I'm trying to be kind of careful where I don't get, you know, I don't mix up fire with, with my, my other interests. <laughs> Well, I think we've uh, we've kind of burned this one out. So if you're good for that, we'll um, 
We'll talk about some other things. Ed Komarek, back with more in a moment on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And uh, we are back with Ed Komarek. And um, he stays with us for the full two hours. We have been talking about uh, wildfires and how fire suppression has contributed to the severity of wildfires. And he's warning of a possible terrorist attack utilizing a massive wildfire. Um, but, but uh, Ed, I, I wanted to move on. If uh, I know you don't like to mix the two, but I, I, we sort of left, I think, uh, that, that behind. And, and um, I wanted to talk about uh, how you say, say that... Our leaders in the world, had it not, had they not failed us back in the 40s and 50s, you sort of say that we would have this positive vision of Star Trek. It could have been our, our present-day reality. You talk about this in UFOs, exopolitics, and the, the new world disorder. Uh, talk, to, talk to me a little bit about, about what happened, do you, 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 do you think, in the 40s and 50s that, that prevented... This uh, this you know positive vision of a Star Trek world. Well, if if if, if, if you if you think fire, you know we've created a catastrophic situation with fire. Holy moly! You know when you get into extraterrestrial contact and the suppression of the truth involved with that, you've actually completely uh, suppressed a culture, much like what happened in Russia, where they suppressed you know separated their people from the outside world during the Soviet Union, uh, you know's existence and whatever. Uh, it, it, it's just it's hard to conceive of how devastating it's been. And before I get into it, though, let's uh, you, you, you've got up on your website the links uh, on the fire book and the uh, my other books. You can get into them through my uh, portal website, com slash, or you can go to the fire book, and the UFO book is there as well as the Enlightenment book. And people can easily contact me if they want to ask questions on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, and I also run the, the group Association of Fire Management Activists that people can join and keep up on what's going on with prescribed fire and wildfire, fire, not just in the United States, uh, but around the world. But as as far as as what happened, what happened again, uh, as I discussed, you know, uh, about fire, is is that in order to co- come up with a remedy, a doctor, you know, you can't even get in to see a doctor until you fill out a form on your patient history because the causes of your illness may go back in time in, into the history, and so. Just like we've tried to talk a little bit about fire or about the history of fire and whatever, because it's important to find a remedy and a cure by going back into history and finding the, the real causes and then, you know, develop a, a remedy. And the whole thing, the, it, the whole nother can of worms is a situation involving UFOs, extraterrestrial contact, and suppression of the truth of that. And that really started in earnest. It was 
ongoing even before the 40s. Uh, apparently, Germany was uh, reverse engineering um, uh, spacecraft uh, involved with exotic propulsion systems even uh, before World War II and then during World War II. And they even came up with uh, an agrivitic uh, craft, apparently, but they couldn't use it because basically in order to um, create anti-gravity and also electromagnetic propulsion, you, know, you have to have these really large capacitors and you have to have a, a really powerful power source to power these capacitors. So they could power up their craft, send it up, but it's going to come back down in 15 or 20 minutes because as the, as the capacitor is discharged, they didn't have a compact enough power plant in order to um, uh, power this craft. And it wasn't until uh, the United States had compact nuclear weapon. The Navy developed compact uh, uh, power plants for ships and and even spacecraft, even working on spacecraft and stuff like that. So they developed, a, 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 by the late 1950s, uh, people started that were involved in these classified programs of talk. So you have a really timeline all the way from when the Germans got in, into reverse engineering these technologies and then all the way up to the 40s and the 50s. And by 1959, they were we were flying our own craft that had nuclear power plants power plants inside. And then that was the beginning of what we call the secret space fleet that's been been uh, developing ever since. And now apparently they have carrier craft in space as well as, well as uh, scout ships and all these other different things. And it's all being kept from the public, and when President Trump says, Trump says that we're going to have a, uh, a space uh, force or whatever, well, we've already got it. They're just trying to legitimize it. Right. And, this is part of controlled uh, disclosure. Yeah, yeah, and so because of these technologies, uh, the problem was in the 1940s and 50s, the elite that really run the world, the financiers, like J.P. Morgan told uh, Nikola Tesla, that uh, if I can't put a uh, a meter on it, I don't want to have nothing to do with it. Right, because Tesla you know, had figured it, out a way to, tra- to yeah, transmit electricity yeah, wirelessly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so in the 1950s, this all this got suppressed, you know, because it would completely revolutionize not only just energy; it would really revolutionize. Uh, you wouldn't have any. You wouldn't have fossil fuels, so you wouldn't have the climate change problem we have, and all environmental destruction, whatever. Because you would have gone to a very clean, exotic energy uh, energy that wouldn't have cost very much. Basically, just taking energy out of space to make the uh, same way some of these spacecraft are piloted and whatever. And then you wouldn't have highways and bridges and asphalt and whatever because you would have you would have uh the Jetsons kind of of of, of uh, flying cars that were anti gravity cars and whatever. So that's all that cement companies, asphalt companies, okay, you wouldn't have it completely revolutionized medical and all the pharmaceutical industry would be be out, you have you know, radiant uh healing and all kinds of different things that E T S use and whatnot and all this kind of stuff. So that'll all be out so right off the bat, the elite who had their people in the intelligence community when the, when the crash at Roswell happened and even before that realized that they were going to lose control over this planet and control over the people if this knowledge came out, and they would lose trillions of dollars. And so they decided to suppress it so they wouldn't lose the trillions of dollars, you know, whatever, because this is what happens is in the society 
uh, a civilization builds up on innovation, but that innovation eventually develops entrenched interests, and those entrenched interests then suppress new innovation, and that causes the decline in society, societies like Greece and Rome and whatever. So it's happening. We're getting a decline in society because these special interests have suppressed all this information, and if it ever does come out, it's going to be worse than a catastrophic wildfire. You're going to you're going to you're going to have you're going to have a truth uh, uh, conflagration, you know, because it's going to shake people up so bad. Because the whole monetary system is based upon uh, fossil fuels and, and uh, cars and all these other things and whatever, and they can't possibly allow that truth to, to come out because because it would revolutionize everything, and not only that, we would have some extraterrestrials are very advanced, ethically advanced, and we would have extraterrestrial role models. We'd see how these extraterrestrials really live, and we're going to be like people in Syria. We want to get out. We, we want to go to, to, to the United States. We want to go to Europe because, you know, it, and so, so that can't be allowed to happen under the current power structure. So, right. When was the decision, do you think, to monopolize extraterrestrial technologies made? Was it after Roswell? Uh, it was gradual. Apparently there were crashes. Uh, Roosevelt was, you know, in the Roosevelt administration, they had a crash. They had something in the, some stuff in the basement of the White House, I think. But it really was an earth. Uh, Roswell was a big wake-up call, and it almost got out at Roswell. So they really had to tighten up on security. And the reason that in Watergate... They called them plumbers was because plumbers fix leaks. And so you have billions of dollars that are used to keep this stuff classified and make sure that it doesn't leak out to the public. And if it does leak out to the public, to discredit those people that are leaking it or even killing them in some extent, in instance, whatever, because trillions of dollars are involved in suppressing a technology, but trillions of dollars are involved in reverse engineering these technologies and, and, and putting them in the marketplace and in the defense industry and whatever. So it's just like everything else, just follow money. It's all about money and money and power over other people. And, and so do the, do the, 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 the corporations and the, the owners of these corporations that have access to this technology, would you agree with someone like Richard Dolan who say they constitute a separate, almost a breakaway civilization? Yeah, yeah, I, I very much agree with Richard Dolan on that. He's a credible individual in the field. Unfortunately, there's a lot of there's a lot of people that aren't credible, but Richard Richard Dolan is 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 a credible individual, and the stuff that he talks about, I talk about too. You know, in, in my Exopolitics book. And by the way, all my books are free. People can go on the internet and read them on their cell phones or on their computer, as well as articles and and whatever. Because I made them free because I didn't want to write this stuff and not have you know not have people read them. And I've been very appreciative of my mentors all through my life, not only just on in fire, but in but in in uh, existential things and in enlightenment and whatever. And so before while I was still capable, I wanted to put what I knew in these three areas that I was very knowledgeable of and make it available to the public because I kind of feel like we're the fruit prize of the galaxy. And if you're the fruit prize of the galaxy, you can mutate pretty fast, but it's imperative that you tra be able to transfer good quality information to the young all the time to be able to build your civilization up to the point where you have thousand-year lifespans like some of these extraterrestrial humans have. And so, 
Paul Hillier is another person, you know, the defense minister in Canada. Yes. has talks about there's a number of different extraterrestrial races, and he knows about the tall whites and others and whatever. But, but like, this Lewis that came, that came out with... Uh, these uh, gun camera photos around the Nimitz, and uh, and this all come out, and, you know, uh, here in the last couple of years, or whatever. He says the people that know what's going on can't talk, and the people that don't know are free to just uh, clutter up and trash the whole subject. And that just fits right into into the into the cover up because people are are unable to discriminate. They don't have the the scientific or the intelligence. Of gathering uh, knowledge, you know, I, I studied intelligence gathering, uh, CIA intelligence gathering, and other intelligence agencies. Basically, you gather as much evidence as you can, and you compile it, and then you and then you analyze it and look for patterns, especially between uh, different isolated individuals and whatever. So I came to my understanding of extraterrestrial contact and all the different extraterrestrials that are interacting with us here on Earth and whatever from, like, uh, um, better, uh, um, uh, 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 um, I'm trying to think, uh, Albert, um, whatever, who, uh, compiled 15 to 20,000 humanoid cases that go all the way back in the, into the late 1800s, even. And if you take all, that's just ordinary people and farmers and stuff that ran into a craft that was sampling from soil or doing sampling water down about a creek or something like that, you know. There's no story there. They just encountered these uh, extraterrestrial people, and quite a few of them are human. And you take all those and you compile all those thousands of cases and you can get a pretty good idea of what's going on in a broad sense but as far as the detail about the cultures of the different extraterrestrial types you can't get that the only one i'm really confident about is charles hall and the tall whites the other ones i'm fairly wary about because usually what happens with a scammer does is he start he builds up starts building a story it's a storytelling and he draws his to draw the people to him and whatever as he can concoct his story and he makes it dramatic and whatever and it goes on and on and on and, you know, and whatever in order to manipulate and control people either for money or for fame right. or but whatever. I, I, let me just stop you. Let me just, just jump in here, Ed, deal. for a second. Let me just jump in here. <laughs> uh, and you, you talk about sort of the, uh, this spiritually enlightened race of aliens, but... Uh, what evidence is there there that they are ethical, uh, at least the, the races of aliens that are interacting with us? Uh, because surely, the, the, you know, they must have struck some sort of a, a treaty uh, or a technological transfer agreement with these elites. So we're certainly not, it's certainly not coming down into the, you know, to the public realm. Uh, we're, we're not, we don't have access to this technology. Yeah. So yeah, why yeah. would you, why do you, what, what leads you to believe these alien races are, are ethical if they are striking these agreements? Okay, remember, it's very complex. You have some, some extraterrestrials like the Greys that are, that are involved in these secret agreements and whatever that basically don't think much of our human rights. You know, they think of us, you know, one time I looked up at the sky and I asked, you know, when I was a young man, I asked, you know, who are you? And they and they, I didn't like the answer that came down. It says, "We are to you as you are to your garden." <laughs> that tells right. you a lot. That's the that's the grays. But the grays aren't the only ones that are here. And so you've got to understand that that that, that there are 
Buku's uh, planetary systems and life is evolving on all these planetary systems all over the u- universe. And some of them are coming here, and some of them, you know, nat- the, there's certain structures of nature. You know, you start off with single-cell organisms, you develop sponges, you develop jellyfish, you develop fishes, you develop amphibians, you develop reptiles, you develop man- manual, and whatever. But if that gets interrupted, like with an asteroid, if that asteroid hadn't hit, we, instead of us being here as mammals, we would probably have an intelligent species of reptiles that would be evolving off of this planet. And so you've got you've got insects that are evolving off of other planets that kind of look like praying mantises that may control some of the greys or whatever. They're kind of insect toys, you know, and whatever. And you've got a whole variety of different kinds of humans and humanoids, which means that the human genetic material must be be all over the place, all over the galaxy. All right, Ed, hold on. We'll take another time out. Okay. UFOs, Exopolitics, and the New World Disorder at Comerick with us here on The Conspiracy Show. We'll be right back. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Ed Komarek, UFOs, Exopolitics, and the New World Disorder. He is quite the Renaissance man. Um, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on uh, Tom DeLonge and um, the Academy to the Stars and their work? To, uh, yeah, they're, in, in they're, disclosure. They're credible and, and they're trying to release information, but they're getting really frustrated because the classified world will only uh, leak out so much through them. And so basically it's just, it's just a drip, drip, you know, situation. And, and from what I've seen, they're, they're, you know, they're being frustrated in their ability to get a lot of this truth out. And it's just a superficial truth. It's about the gun camera footage and all that kind of stuff. It's not about the alliances and the treaties and uh, and, and whatnot. It, 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 it's really not that difficult if you think about it. You know, for instance, take a country like Syria uh, that's involved in the civil war. You know, we just can't waltz into Syria because of, Russia, of the Russians, and Russia just can't waltz in, and we're going to undermine what they're doing. So it, it, if a country is unstable and weak internally, it sets itself up for uh, superpower interventions, and which makes everything even worse because you, you don't just have a civil war going on in your country amongst your own people. You've got all these other actors from outside getting involved because uh, because some are making claims to this turf and some are making claims to that turf. So we're kind of the, the existential situation we're in or the exco-political situation we're in is just like a small third world country surrounded by superpowers trying to maintain its own integrity uh, and, and not be, be overwhelmed and caught up in the extraterrestrial conflicts that are mostly covert uh, because the extraterrestrials are, are, are really advanced and so they're really subtle so they just can't waltz in and take over this world, they have to undermine it covertly, and then the others on the other side have to try to support this, and that gets into some of the stuff that came out uh, recently, uh, 
by a guy who said he worked in, you know, designing some of the craft in the secret space program and all that kind of stuff and whatever. So whenever one superpower makes a move, the other superpowers are going to make a move to counter it. So we're, we're just caught in the middle, just like a small, small country uh, surrounded by superpowers. Right. And, 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 and there are rules about what you can do and what you can't do that the superpowers have agreed amongst themselves. You know, we have certain agreements with Russia that we won't go too far and, and where Russia doesn't go too far in Syria. And so there's a juxtaposition. So the superpowers all have, have these rules, and that's kind of what the extraterrestrial situation is. The extraterrestrial superpowers have rules. They have some predator species can move in and try to take over, but then they will count, other ones will counter that. But it's all according to to, to a, a set of uh, understood rules or whatever, uh, just like you know we have in international politics. Is there a Majestic 12? Is it real? What? Majestic 12, this group that is... Yes, I, yes, I believe so. Uh, I've, uh, I've studied a lot of cases. I've talked to people that were even had connections to MJ-12. That's one thing, you know, you can gather all this information you know, uh, on the internet and in the, in the media and whatever and try to make sense of it all by sorting through it all to look for patterns. But it really helps as you get involved yourself. So I got involved in some of my own encounter cases that happened here locally because I got, got, uh, there was a lot of new activity going on and I got on the, uh, uh in, in articles in the paper and stuff like that. So people would call me and I was found there's like one, a couple of UFO, sightings on average probably every week here and i got in the middle of some encounter cases that involve extraterrestrial humans short stocky ones and then the typical nordic types and whatever they were studying some of the pesticide runoffs and you know ecological damage that was going on in my area here and whatever there's a tremendous amount of scientific work being done by these extraterrestrials uh, amongst other things and whatever they're just not you know, like the Greys, you know, manipulating and trying to get control over this planet, you know, for themselves and, you know, and manipulating our elites to, to do that. There's other extraterrestrials here, too. And so, like I say, there's there's agreements amongst the superpowers as to how Earth is can can be persuaded or managed, and no one superpower can take over the planet. And so we're kind of left in the kind of stasis, which is kind of good for us because it gives us, uh, you know, we have some free will in this process. Just like the people in uh, Switzerland, you know, has has kind of like developed a porcupine strategy of defense and whatever and and not get involved in the wars that were going on around them in Europe and, and whatever and whatnot. Then they've done fairly well, whereas Syria... And Venezuela and other countries that are internally weak or whatever are subject to superpower uh, uh, um, manipulations and whatever, according to the different agendas of the different superpowers. Right. Um, we're going to head into a break here in a moment, but I'll, I'll ask you this, and then we can we can sort it out on the other side. And that has to do with the uh, the alien abduction phenomenon and and whether that is. Uh, sort of a, a, a false psychological screen uh, that has been created in order to sort of create fear about extraterrestrials, or is that one of the more uh, nefarious alien civilizations that, that is responsible for that? What is your take on the, the abduction phenomenon? 
Well, one way to keep things secret is to instill fear in the military, you know, is to abduct people, do, mutilate them, and drop them on top of people's houses, which seems to have been done, which causes the military to circle the wagons. So that's one of the reasons of the cover-up, to be, you know, begin with, of being instigated by some of these unethical types, or I like to call them just predatory extraterrestrials. You have predatory extraterrestrials, you have some are just kind of in between, and then you have some really advanced ethical types here. So it really gives us people here on earth a choice and if we're going to be uncivil to each other and kill and murder each other and whatnot we're going to fall in and probably be dominated and taken over by the the predatory types like the grays and the manis types and whatever if we treat each other better and we love each other and care for each other and whatever and become more altruistic then we'll gravitate to, to the more advanced extraterrestrial races and we'll have a really positive future and won't be we won't end up being enslaved by another extraterrestrial culture we'll, we'll be able to maintain our independence and be able to to evolve you know in a, in, in a start Star Trek kind of uh, universe. All right, Ed, uh, stay stay uh, put. We'll come back. One more segment with Ed Comerick, UFOs, Exopolitics, and the New World Disorder. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Ed Kalmarek uh, remains with us for a few moments yet. Longtime UFO ET investigator and activist. has been involved in the field for four decades. And for the past several years, it has written over... 200 exopolitical essays on exopolitics published to his blog and in the uh, the internet press and uh, his uh, book is UFOs exopolitics and the new world disorder uh, I want to ask you about another phenomenon and that is uh, the cattle mutilation which some claim again is is kind of a uh, well fake news basically and again this is designed to sort of demonize extraterrestrials uh, what, what, what is your thought on the the, the, the cattle mutilation well uh, there's actually human mutilations too but that's been suppressed a lot and some of it is just to instill fear you know if you instill fear in a population that they're easy to control and so that just boils down to, and also, they're getting certain things from uh, material, genetic material, and that kind of stuff from cattle and whatever and whatnot. But there's just so much, so many mutilations. It's unbelievable how many there are, and they're just like the clouds have been just dropped from the sky. There's no tracks around. No, you know, they've been surgically very like laser laser cuts, and so that's all ties in with the grays and, and their agenda and whatever. But like I was getting you know, to it, it's basically exist, existential, and that's where you get into my into my uh, my third book, which is the Enlightenment, the Long Hard Road to Enlightenment. Is is that every everything we say, everything we do, everything we think affects our uh, uh, who we are and and what we become. And we have a we are being offered a choice, and the battle lines run right. Right through us, and 
it's a battle, just like the military says, for the hearts and minds of the people of planet Earth. But it's a covert battle, and it's, and it's along certain rules, and they have certain rules about how it's done. But there's a battle for the hearts and minds of the Earth. And every time we think badly of another person, any time we prey on somebody else or hurt somebody else, or we do damage to nature, you know, as well as, you know, to ourselves and whatever, we move a little farther from our optimal evolutionary path, you know, and maybe more pain and suffering is necessary. You know, the one thing I've come up recently is, is suffering is the default driver of evolution, that if you don't, you're being presented with, lessons and if you don't learn those lessons and pass those tests you're going to continue to suffer and it happens for children the child hits his head on the corner of the table he hurts himself he learns not to hit his head on the corner of the table and whatever so this way it gets into the lightning thing and then you get into one out of ten people have had a ufo experience but one out of ten people have had a near-death experience and, and are they connected? Not quite as many had reincarnational experiences and whatever. Are they so connected, Ed? Are they connected? A near-death experience and a, uh, a UFO experience? It's all, it, it's all connected. You know, everything is connected. And what we have to understand is, is every word we speak, every thought that we think, moves us either into a more enlightened state or into a more degraded state. So... We have free will, you know, in a way, but it's, it's the way our virtual reality is set up or universe or whatever it is, if it's, it may even be virtual, maybe a simulation, it's basically based on the carrot and stick. You either learn your lessons, you know, and, and, and become uh, happy, a truly happy person and satisfied person, or you don't. You keep hitting your head against the wall and hurting yourself until you do learn. And what I've learned in my life is, is I don't try not to judge anybody. I have to protect myself from predators, but I don't prejudge them because everybody is learning their own lessons at their own time and their own place, and they're and and that's fine. And suffering is going to be the driver, you know, until people become conscious because suffering, you know, is being driven by our unconscious a lot of times until we become conscious. And we move forward, and we learn our lessons. Even the amoeba, if it makes moves in the wrong direction, it gets eaten or it gets hurt by something else or whatever. So it's learning. So even the single cell organisms are are learning, and they make mistakes, and they pay for it either with suffering or death. And it's the same same way for us. And so we have to align ourselves with the more more advanced extraterrestrial races, but also these races that. It goes beyond extraterrestrials. It becomes completely existential, you know, and whatever, and 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 be mentored by the more more advanced beings rather than fall into the traps, you know, by the more predatory tribes and end up being consumed and enslaved. Ed, are you a contactee? Uh, no, but I've known a lot of con- con- well, may- maybe uh, I've known a lot of contact people. Uh, people have had contact not just with the grays. There was one lady who was having problems with, you know, blood on the sheets and the abduction phenomenon and stuff and whatever. And that night, when I interviewed her the first time, and that night, uh, I was woke up in the middle of the night with this kind of a buzzing like bees, and they were like angry bees, and they said, stay out of it. It's none of your business. And I said, whoa. <laughs> I better back out of that relationship a little bit. 
And I just said, you know, you guys are going to have to take care of this because this is beyond me. And I've kind of backed out for a while, and I met her later on, and she was starting to have contact with more advanced human beings and whatever, and she was she was a lot happier, and she had freed herself from that to a certain degree. So I had that kind of encounter, and then one I uh, told you about that we are as you are to your garden, you know, when yes. I was a young you know, young man, and then I got involved in, in cases here uh, and involved other extraterrestrials where my television would turn on in the middle of the night, and I'd never seen this show the luck of the Irish and these little people come out of the side of the mountainside on horseback you know whatever and somebody just turned my television on in the middle of the night right to that exact thing it just couldn't have been coincidence you know involved in whatever so they're interacting more advanced extraterrestrials are interacting with me but it's, tel- it's basically telepathic I think and it's to a degree that that it keeps me safe you know and, and you know if I was having direct contact with more advanced ethical races and whatever it would probably put me in jeopardy uh, by some of the elites and the less ethical uh, extraterrestrials that are you know manipulating the elites so the the the, the particular race uh, of alien that you, that one interacts with is directly tied to one's own level of spiritual development if you're kind of in a in a, a a low state yep. of spiritual development, you're going to be interacting with, with greys and, and uh, the, the praying mantis or insectoid-type aliens, and if you're a higher spiritually developed, then you'll interact with the tall ones or the Nordics. Is that how it works? Yeah, I, I, I've actually seen that happen to pe- people. It's a consciousness thing, you know, and in my book, The Long Hard Road to Enlightenment, which, again, you can read on your uh, cell phone or on your computer or whatever, I you know I get in I get into that. All right. Um, so, who who is responsible, or what what race of alien is responsible for these um, unidentified submersible objects that uh, that people are seeing coming out from uh, oh, but, various bodies of water? Who's piloting oh, those craft? Yeah, many different races. You know, like when we when we go to the moon, we're going to have underground uh, bases on the moon. Russians are going to have underground bases. The Chinese are going to have underground bases on the moon, whatever. So depending on what the extraterrestrials are interested in here, you know, some of it is probably purely scientific. Some may be geologic. Some may be, you know, involved in natural. I was dealing with a contact person in which they were collecting plants and vegetables and stuff and whatever. And they even brought him a fruit that tastes from another planet, whatever. And and so they have. This is many different. There's this is many different. You got to remember the universe is a big place, and there's some some beings that are just coming through here, and you know once in a while there's some that are frequent here, and some are here almost a lot of time that have bases. If you're going to be here a lot, you're going to probably have a base. If not, you can just operate out of your mothership, you know, in space or whatever. But if you're going to be active here for whatever your interests are, you're going to have to have a base, and the best place to have a base is down, way down deep into the bedrock or down the uh, underground than the bottom of the oceans and whatever, so that you don't uh, affect the indigenous populations any more than you have to. Do you have any thoughts on whether or not the President of the United States has the power to disclose? Uh, the president, no. The president doesn't doesn't have the power. That it's all locked up in the corporations and the corporate lawyers. You know, the, there was this general that I think he talked uh, Stephen Greer or whatever, and 
uh, and and leaked some information, and they and he and he had this meeting, and it was these corporate lawyers, and they wanted to know where he got the information from, and and whatever. So it's locked up, and and what I consider what I talked about in my exopolitics book is a kind of a a consortium of of of, of, of elite interests and corporations that basically control this whole matter. They they, they control the need to know. They control the classification system. And it's the corporate lawyers up at the top working for these corporations that it, that, it, that determine the special access programs and and, and, and the uh, uh, the unacknowledged special access programs and all that kind of stuff. They even control MG12. Apparently, in the Nixon administration, there was a split on MJ12 that that split between the scientific parts of MJ12 and then the commercial parts and, and whatnot. And so the consortium basically is controls even MJ12 and whatever. Uh, what that's, that's I can understand. Right. What percentage of of UFO sightings are actually advanced uh, aircraft designed and created by humans, and what what percentage are actual extraterrestrial craft? You mean Earth humans? Yes. Uh, well, it didn't used to be that much, you know, back in the Foo Fighters and eighteen hundreds and whatever, you know, and all those sightings and stuff. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't any. And then the 1940s with the Germans, maybe in, after Germany, you may have some with from the Russians and whatever. So I would now probably, well, you know, who knows? You know, it could be 25% or 50% could be our, be our military. But the thing about it is maybe not because you don't want to fly your, you know, these kind of craft where they could crash into some population area and expose the whole thing, you know. So... It's probably limited, you know, uh, to outer space or, or in remote areas, you know, the more military craft, because they don't want to lose. You know, they, they just lost a $100 million fighter, I think you saw in the news yes. here the other day. Yes, the F-35. And whatever, you know, and they cordon that whole thing off, you know, and keep everybody from, you know, seeing what's going on and whatnot. But if if, you, if they had a saucer and it crashed in a populated area and there were reporters around, it would be a hell of a thing to cover up. So, so the military's got to be careful about where they fly fly this, you know, their their craft and stuff. You know, it's like that. You know, the uh, affair where the people got radiated. You know, what was that around eighty uh, two? That case, I think that was probably a meltdown on a nuclear reactor inside of a craft that radiated uh, uh, those two ladies and a son, I think, or whatever. Right. Right. Well, I forgot the name, whatever, but. Ed, it's been an absolute delight uh, meeting with meeting you and uh, speaking with you. I hope you'll join me again sometime. Uh, give us uh, the websites. Okay, uh, you can go to k o m a r e k at weebly dot com slash, or you can go to fireinnature dot weebly dot com, or you can. Uh, if you need need some help or whatever, you can contact me on Facebook. You can become a member of the Association of Fire Management Activists on Facebook to keep up with the fire stuff. So, uh, or you can just do a word word search on me, and some of that uh, should should come up. Or even even you've got the links there on we do uh, we, on, on on your web page to my stuff. We do indeed, Ed. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Ed Komarek, my thanks uh, to Foz and Albert and Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.
Good night.